Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer, along with John Adams. Today on the episode, John and I are going to offer some uh, some preseason predictions we have that go against the grain. There's a lot of a uh, lot of groupthink out there at this point in the preseason. Everybody have put their predictions out. I think a lot of them at this point are are influencing each other. But John and I are going to go go upstream with a few of our preseason picks. Uh, then we're going to get into some recent comments Nick Saban made about being in rebuilding mode last year, and then maybe uh, try to catch up with where in the wide world is Dan Mullen these days. But uh, first off, John, it's uh, it's been preseason prediction time for probably, oh, seven months now. Uh, you got any... you? Know, What's the earliest you ever put out a preseason prediction now? Because now they come out like the day after the national championship game. Do you have you ever predated that with a preseason prediction? I've actually made a preseason prediction the day of the national championship game. Okay, so before like, uh, it kicks off, you're, you're yeah. To- let's just go ahead and get this thing over with and start looking ahead to next year, where everybody has a shot. You're down to two teams at this point. And we like on this podcast to sometimes go against the grain. And I want to compliment uh, my friend Jerry, who bought my 20-year-old Honda Accord. I had other friends say, you were able to sell that thing? Mechanic says, man, you need to let it go, okay? And Jerry bought that bought that car for a really good price, and it's running fine, he said. Talked to him the other day. So he went against the grain and uh, looked like he's hit the mother load that Honda Accord 20 years old and going strong and I'm having uh I'm having remorse over it I knew you would I knew you would we well we've already got our first upset of the season then if Jerry's getting good luck out of that that Accord maybe we'll uh stumble upon a few other uh upset teams here in in our picks so I'm gonna let you you start it off here and and just sort of the the parameters of this is you know we're, we're trying to offer some sort of pick that it goes that goes against what the common thought is out there you know we're not looking at any one set of predictions that we're looking to contradict but sort of you know we've all been keeping up with the predictions you know what the narratives are out there so these are intended uh, to go against that a little bit because we're not going to be influenced just by what everybody else tells us and Neither should you. But, John, would you get us rolling here with your fir- your first pick? Well, I'll start off by going against one of your picks, uh, Arkansas. You're high on the hogs. I think Arkansas can be really good this year. The problem is the schedule. I don't know what they were thinking, uh, who made out this schedule, but when you play your non-conference games against BYU on the road, you play Cincinnati, a, a Final Four team last year, even Liberty has had some impressive wins in the last few years under Hugh Freeze. Then go through that gauntlet of the SEC West. I just think it's asking too much of a team. 
And what you can have, here's a team coming into the season with a lot of momentum after the bowl win over Penn State, winning nine games, all the momentum in its favor, picked in the top 25. If it loses early, I really think it uh, could uh, put a dent in that in that emotion, a positive emotion that Arkansas has going for it. Uh, I just think it overscheduled in this case. And I know schedules are made way out ahead of time sometimes, but Cincinnati's been pretty good for a while now. So, and playing at BYU, just in the middle of that SEC schedule, that that's a lot to ask. You know, it's interesting with Arkansas, John. I don't want to say that, uh, you know, I'm like an evil mastermind influencing everybody out there, but I really thought I was kind of in early on the hogs, on the mm-hmm. off-season hype. I mean, gosh, how long have I been pounding this drum? Since probably March or April, at least, I feel like. And now it seems a little more conventional that, oh, yeah, Arkansas is going to have a big season. I mean, the media at SEC Media Days picked Arkansas to finish third in the West. That was probably – now, I have no problem with that pick, of course, because, as you mentioned, I'm high on the hog. But that was higher, I think, than I expected Arkansas to be. But it just seems like everybody's sort of caught on with this, and, and now I'm not the only one. I might still be driving the Arkansas bandwagon, but I'm not the only one on board. So I know you've been hesitant to, to get on. So that I, I would say, yeah, you're that is against the grain there. If you're saying that Arkansas, maybe not in maybe not an actual overall performance, but record wise is going to regress from from last season. And I, I don't know if I agree with that, but I will say you make a fair point with the schedule. I, I think that's Arkansas, Mississippi State, and Auburn, I think they have three of the the toughest schedules in in the nation this year. And, Blake, you look at – it's the way the schedule is loaded up. You start out opening against Cincinnati, come right back against South Carolina, much improved team. Um, Then you got an easy win against Mississippi, Missouri State, but then A&M and Alabama back-to-back. That's in the first five games. You could very easily be three and two if – even two and three in a worst case scenario with a lot right. of schedule left. Well, I got to say, you've got me a little more concerned that I might be off in the weeds with my, my preseason pick, but I can always deny that I ever said it. Yeah. That was um, a long time ago when you started that on that bandwagon. Sure. All right. I'm going to stay in the, uh, in the sec West with, with mine, my, my first choice here, John, uh, and I'm going with Texas A&M. You know, Texas A&M came out in the uh, the preseason USA Today AFCA coaches poll. They always change the name of that poll. I have a hard time keeping up with it. But right now it's the USA Today AFCA coaches poll. Texas A&M is seventh in the preseason rankings. They were picked to finish second in the SEC by the media. And they're seen as a fringe playoff contender. And I just don't see it, John. I, I think... So much of this is built around A&M's number one ranked recruiting class. And I don't have any criticisms of that class. I mean, you know, at this point, it's still all hype. But, you know, as far as hype goes, I think it's about as as about as hyped as, as a recruiting class can be. So even if all of those guys, you know, you don't have to have all of those guys pan out. Even if 60% of them live up to their, their recruiting ranking, that's going to be a major, major class for, for the Aggies. But at the end of the day, they're still true freshmen. And I know true freshmen can start and can dazzle in the SEC, but I don't think you know, this isn't college basketball. You're not going to roll out uh, 
you know, a whole starting lineup full of true freshmen and, and just not skip a beat. There's, you, you have to surround yourself with veterans still. Um, and I look at this Texas A&M team and, and they lost a lot from last season off of a team that, mind you, only went eight and four last year. You know, in terms of, of returning starters, A&M ranks toward the, toward the bottom of the conference, uh, returned just nine starters between the two sides of the ball, really didn't do much in the transfer portal. I mean, that's the difference between A&M and several other teams that are reloading in this conference is they went, you know, hard in the transfer portal, whereas A&M is building it much more through recruiting. And I think maybe by next year, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm there. Maybe I'm ready to buy that A&M should be a preseason number seven and should be a sort of a fringe playoff contention team. But I'm not there yet this year. We don't even know who their quarterback's going to be. Um, you know, you look at some of what they lost last year, lost their leading receiver and their tight end. Jalen Weidermeyer lost their running back in Isaiah Spiller. And I know they still have some some really good playmakers back at the skill positions. Not knowing who their quarterback is, combined with what they lost, combined with the fact that this was a team that was, you know, eight and four and not ten and two last season. I think between the recruiting class and the fact that they beat Alabama, that's leading to them being, you know, somewhat overhyped here in the in the preseason. So I don't think my my pick is that they're not going to finish. Uh, I'll say they're not going to finish in the top 10 in the rankings, and they're not going to finish second in the SEC West. Well, I, I admittedly have been, uh, and so have a lot of other people, ever since Jimbo Fisher was hired at AM, i I've maybe been a little bit um, ahead of the curve on them. I, I just expect them to be a much better program under him than they were under Kevin, Kevin Sumlin. Record-wise, that's not the case. Uh, but the recruiting, the recruiting class year is so overly hyped, really. I mean, Alabama, nobody even blinks when Alabama has the number one recruiting class. I think a lot of that had to do with Alabama not having the number one class uh, or that somebody else had in it, and it was A&M, and I think people kind of got ahead of themselves in, in evaluating how this would impact the Aggies this season. I still think the Aggies can finish second in the West. I like Max Johnson at quarterback. I read something the other day, though, that said, and this just might have been clickbait, but was writing that uh, that could Connor Wegman win the starting job, the true freshman, a much acclaimed quarterback. And, and they still have Haynes King, who started out the last season as quarterback before he got hurt. But potentially, I think they'll be better off at quarterback than they were last year. So that's in their favor. I also think that that freshman class could become a factor in the second half of the season as these freshmen get acclimated to playing college football and as as starters might go down with injury. Uh, Veteran players go down with injury. So I, I look for the Aggies to finish strong. I could see them winning their last their last five games. But I don't see the Aggies right now. I see them. I think you said they were, aren't they seventh? Is that right in the coaches' ball? I I see uh, right on the fringe of the the top 10 going into the season, but could finish in the top 10 with strong finish. And the one thing I'll say for A&M, whereas I agree with you, Arkansas schedule concerns me about my my pick of of the hogs there up high in, in the West. Texas A&M kind of goes the other way. I, I think the schedule sets up relatively favorably for them. They play 
their crossover games are a road game against South Carolina, which would be tough. Then they get Florida at home. It's a good year to get Florida. Uh, And then some of their important swing games, I feel like, in the West, it's favorable because they're going to be at Kyle Field. They'll, They'll host Ole Miss and they'll host LSU in the Thanksgiving week game. And I think those are two teams that, you know, if, if the Aggies are going to finish second in the West, that L, LSU and Ole Miss, I think, are are key, you know, sort of toss-up games that the way I look at them. But the fact that they're at home, you know, that that helps should help the Aggies. And and then the the uh, the game against Arkansas is at a neutral site in in Arlington, Texas. So, you know, I, I'd say three games that A and M really needs to win in the West. They're not playing a true road game in in any of them. So. If there is something that makes me feel like, hey, maybe they can live up to the hype, maybe they can get to say ten and two, even eleven and one, it's the fact that I think the schedule does set up in their favor. But just looking at the roster, looking at the two deep, I feel like they're going to be so reliant on true freshmen, and I just, I don't know. I, I think I'm always maybe maybe a little more hesitant than the than the common man out there to think that okay, these these eight five stars they signed or the endless amount of four stars you know again I, I feel like they're probably going to be ready come next year to be stars in the sec but expecting those guys to to step in and in, in year one take charge i'm just a, a little skeptical but one thing i don't like about the schedule arkansas plays i mean uh texas a plays miami on september 17th at home its next home game is october 29th and can still miss that's a long time to be away from home and playing in, I know one is a a neutral site, but playing at Mississippi State, at Alabama, at South Carolina. And uh, that Mississippi State game could really be troublesome. Mississippi State beat A&M last season, and you put it, you've got at Alabama, and then come back the next week and play Mississippi State. I'm sorry, you you play Arkansas on the 24th and come back, uh, and play Mississippi State a week later, and then the next game is Alabama. I think Mississippi State, that that would be a great spot for an upset, and, and Mississippi State's certainly capable of that. Yeah, people like to talk about quote-unquote trap games. That yeah. that has all the makings of, of what you would hear labeled as a, as a trap game. All right, so we each got one out there going up against uh, going uphill against the grain. What's your what's your second pick? You got? I'll go over to the east and pick uh, Kentucky. I think everybody's pretty much in agreement that Mark Stoops, uh, who has become a veteran coach in the SEC, and that's not easy to do when you're coaching football at Kentucky. I think everybody agrees that he's done a marvelous job building that program up to maybe another level. However, to say Kentucky's a top 25 team in preseason, I'm not buying that. I, I I question its defensive line, both of its depth and, and its talent. I think that could be a real problem. I don't think the offense's, offensive line is, is, is as good as it's been in the past. And I also wonder if it has a playmaker like Wondell Robinson, the Nebraska transfer that stuck out so much last year. I think they've got another transfer, Tavian Robinson, uh, but I, at wide receiver. But I just don't know if there's enough playmakers. Is Tightly bunched as the West can be, but once you get past Alabama, I, I look at guys who are going to be close games, difference makers, guys that can turn a game on one play. 
And maybe Kentucky has that in a quarterback in Will Levitz. I'm not sure it has that at a wide receiver, though. I know it has a big-time running back in Chris Rodriguez, who had some off-the-field issues recently. I just don't know if it's going to have the playmakers to win those kind of games. I, I think I'm with you on, on that one. I think we're both we, we both are in the camp that Kentucky's maybe being somewhat overvalued here in the preseason. They're picked to finish second in the East, as you mentioned, ranked number 21 preseason USA Today coaches poll. And you know, Kentucky often schedule, schedules its way to a couple extra wins. They, they routinely play one of the lighter schedules in the SEC, and that might help their cause again. But I look at a, at a few games that are going to sort of determine, is this like a 7-5, and 8-4 and four Kentucky season, or is this you know a 10 or 11 win Kentucky season, maybe with just like a loss to Georgia and someone else. But you, know, you run down the line on the road at Florida. That's in week two. I mean, this is a game where on paper, Kentucky has a better team than Florida. That's sort of become like a kind of a sneaky second-tier rivalry game, really, here in just in the last few years. I know historically, obviously, Florida had that long, long winning streak against Kentucky, and you couldn't have called it a rivalry. But in the last handful of years, it's been kind of a toss-up game. Uh, night game at the Swamp. If Florida wins in week one against Utah, you can just bet, which I don't think they will. But if they do, the Swamp's going to be rocking for that game. And then there's a, a couple-week stretch in October that I think will be key. They're, they're at they're at Ole Miss. Uh, that, that projects as a swing game to me. And then uh, the following week, they host South Carolina. Very important game, I think, in the East pecking order. Uh, and then they're on, on the road later that month in October to close out October against Tennessee. So yeah, I think they, you know, I think, you know, if coming into the season, if you have high expectations for Kentucky, maybe you're circling that date against Georgia in November. But really, I look at the month of October as, as what's going to be the, the defining uh, few week stretch there for Kentucky. Yeah, I think you mentioned the Florida game is a game on paper Kentucky should win. But in the swamp, Florida, uh, Kentucky split the last four games with Florida. That's the good news. The bad news, Kentucky's won in the swamp only one time since 1979. And I think if Florida just plays well in the home opener against Utah, a top 10 team, I think there will be a carryover effect from fans with the new coach and Billy Napier. And also the fact that Kentucky has has become sort of a rivalry. I think Florida fans get revved up for that game now because there've been some really there've been some tight close games with some uh some really uh hard hit hard hits uh and some of them were personal fouls or just see that game has an edginess to it. And and I think Florida fans who are inconsistent nowadays uh will be up for that game and that could impact the outcome. The also at Tennessee, I mean, we've seen in recent years, Kentucky with a higher ranked, supposedly better team, uh, lose to Tennessee and lose at Neyland Stadium. It lost by 17 points a few years back when it was ranked 12th nationally. And, and Tennessee was coached by Jeremy Pruitt, who didn't beat a lot of people. I mean, that's a game you think Kentucky should win, but it didn't. So those those two games to me are troublesome if you believe Kentucky's going to be a top 25 team. I, I just don't see it. All right, I'm going to give you a two for one here to, to close out my my final two picks, John, then we'll get into your, your final one. I'm going to go uh, 
boom, boom, and give you a chance to respond to both. So one team I'm higher on than what the preseason rankings suggest is Mississippi State. They were ranked sixth in the West by the media in the preseason picks, and yet Mississippi State brings back more starters than anybody else in the conference, eight starters on each side of the ball. That includes a third-year starting quarterback and Will Rogers, who uh, I think we both believe is is underrated, uh, unfairly gets labeled a system quarterback. I think Will Rogers um, could exceed in, in really any system. And, and I think you just look around the roster. Mississippi State has a lot of experience coming back. We know they can upset top 25 teams. I mean, you look at last year, they beat Texas A&M. They beat NC State. Uh, they beat Auburn. You know, they, they had some good wins uh, last year. Now, what they weren't was consistent. They, they nearly lost to Louisiana Tech in the season opener, and then they did lose to Memphis a couple weeks later. Granted, bad officiating uh, had a hand in that, but in terms of quality wins, Mississippi State was was right up there with, with several other teams in the league. I, they also beat Kentucky last year, one I almost forgot about. And, and with so much coming back, I think they can and will finish higher than sixth in the West. The one thing concerns me is they face a really tough schedule. Uh, they have to play Georgia as one of their crossover games. So that's a team I'm higher than than what the preseason group think says. One that I'm just not quite there on, and, and I was there earlier in the preseason, but I'm backpedaling now, is Tennessee. Now, I don't think Tennessee is going to regress this year. They went seven and six in year one under Josh Heupel. But I think there seems to be a belief out there in a lot of in a lot of corners anyway, that Tennessee is ready to take a you know significant stride forward in Heupel's second season. I'm I'm kind of backpedaling away from that idea. Uh, and it's because of the defense. I, I think this offense is going to put up a ton of points, led by Hendon Hooker's return and Cedric Tillman at wide receiver. But that was already a pretty bad defense last year, and it really showed up against the uh, the average to above average competition. The defense was fine against the bad teams, but when you needed the defense to step up, it, it really didn't do so in some of those toss-up games. And they lost their three best players off an already suspect defense. Their top two defensive backs in Elante Taylor and Theo Jackson, and their best defensive lineman, Matthew Butler, who was in the middle of it all, had a great season last year before heading to the NFL. So I think the offense is is good enough to, you know, for Tennessee to outscore its way to, you know, maybe another seven and five season. But I, I just don't know if I'm ready to go there. I don't think I am in, in terms of, you know, a, a market a markedly better team in, in Josh Heupel's second season. Well, uh, starting with Mississippi State, um, this is the case, I think, with a lot of teams in the league this year. When I look at the schedule and I look at the depth chart, it seems as though a number of these teams that have a have bolstered their depth chart and look better maybe than some teams around them at that same level have a tougher schedule, which kind of balances things out. I mean, Mississippi State's schedule is very troublesome. I um, and, and it also has to play Georgia from the east. Now, just put anybody else in there from the east and you're better off. You're outside your division uh, for your schedule. But I think I think Mississippi State, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't see it making coming into the top twenty-five. I just think it'll have it can have a seven-win season. Uh, but I do think 
it will surprise people in a both a positive and negative way as it did at times last year. I think it's capable of, of beating nationally ranked teams. I don't have any doubt about that. Mike Leach, its coach has a long history of that at Washington state and Texas tech. So I, I'm not, uh, I'm not as enamored with Mississippi state as you are probably more favorable toward Tennessee than you are. It's offense. Yeah. The defense is a huge concern, but I saw games last year where Tennessee's offense was so good that it didn't matter. Now there wasn't an exception and, and you can point to this as evidence uh, and saying that Tennessee might be overrated uh, was the bowl game, the Music City Bowl. I mean, Purdue, a mid-level Big Ten team, just passed for over 500 yards. I think uh, nobody ever heard around here, at least, of Aiden O'Connell, a Purdue quarterback, and he looked like a, a Heisman contender. So, yeah, that would be the concern, and uh, it doesn't help when you play Alabama and at LSU outside your division. So I've got to pick one more team here and I'll go with LSU. I I think the idea that LSU doesn't make the top 25, I I think it's a top 25 team, even though it's playing the SEC West, Brian Kelly has a proven track record. He's won wherever he's been. And what changed my mind about this team and about him and somewhat is how active he was in the transfer portal. He, he gets two Arkansas starters in the secondary, a line starting linebacker at Virginia. He uh, he brings in quarterback from Arizona State or Arizona. I always confuse those teams. <laughs> They're both just kind of in the middle of the Pac-12, and it's really hard to distinguish between those two programs now. But I, I, I do think he's got enough to work with and probably the best – could have the best receiving core in the league and certainly the best receiver in Kadon Boutte, Kayshawn Boutte. So I'll go with LSU as being underrated. I, I see LSU contending with A&M for that, the number two spot in the West. Yeah, I'm with you on LSU. I I, I backed your, uh, your against the grain pick that, that Kentucky is, is maybe being overvalued and, and I'm with you on LSU as, as well. They were not ranked in, in the preseason USA Today coaches poll. I believe they were unranked by Athlon as as well for whatever that's that's worth. And so, yeah, I think the general consist, consensus is that LSU is a not is not a top twenty five team. But like you, I'm pretty intrigued by what they did in the transfer portal. I think I'm in agreement with you that they have a have an argument at the very least for having the uh, the best receiving core in the conference. I think Brian Kelly. You know, he, I, I've I've pointed out that throughout the course of his career, Brian Kelly's lost almost every big game he's he's ever coached in, in terms of the biggest games, at the very least. However, he sure does win a lot of games, and uh, you know, I think LSU could lose its biggest games on the schedule this year and still exceed expectations, still be a top twenty-five team. I thought it was interesting that Ole Miss was ranked in the top twenty-five of the preseason poll not LSU, simply because if you believe in Ole Miss, it's sort of the same theory as LSU. Ole Miss is built, you know, so much around transfers and Lane Kiffin's Portal King strategy, which might very well work. Uh, But it was interesting to see Ole Miss at number 24 in the polls and LSU 
you know, was at number five in those among receiving votes. So it wasn't like it was just outside the top 25. It had four teams ahead of it. Uh, so if you were to carry the poll down that far, in effect, LSU would be ranked 30th. And like you, I think, I think they're going to be better than that. Maybe that's a vote of confidence from fellow coaches for Lane Kiffin. When you look at what he did, he, he really turned Ole Miss around last year via the transfer portal. And now we've seen he's done, he's done the same thing. Kiffin and Brian Kelly were the most, uh, they, I think their programs will benefit the most of any other SEC teams in terms of quantity of transfers. Alabama helped itself too with three key additions, but those guys, those guys really went out and completely revamped their depth charts. Speaking of Alabama, John, that gives us a, a good segue here because Nick Saban raised some eyebrows recently. I believe it was the last week when he uh, did an interview on Birmingham radio station WJOX and said that t- 2021, last season, when Alabama won 13 games, won the SEC, and lost to, to Georgia in the national championship game, Saban said last year was, quote, a rebuilding year for Alabama. And that raised some some eyebrows. And I wrote a column about that this week, John. And my thought is here, like, I don't, I, I fail to see the controversy in that statement. I know some people tried to make it seem like, oh, is, is Saban trying to cheapen Georgia's national title? I don't, I don't read it that way. I think Georgia shouldn't, shouldn't feel any need to cheapen that national championship. They went out and they beat Alabama in the rematch on the biggest stage. Yes, Alabama had some injuries that, you know, if John Mechie and Jamison Williams don't get injured, if, if they're available for that game, maybe Alabama wins that game. But fact is, they were injured. Georgia was, I think, the best top-to-bottom team throughout most of the season, and, and they shouldn't feel like that national championship's cheapened. However, Saban's comment can still be true, and I think when you look at all that that Alabama lost off 2020's national championship team, I think you could fairly say that last year was a a rebuilding year for Alabama. It's just that Alabama has redefined what a rebuilding year looks like, and even in a rebuilding year, Alabama can can be the national runner-up. What do you what do you think? Uh, you know, what, what did you what was your reaction when you? saw that Saban dubbed last season a rebuilding year. I'm very much like you on that. I mean, why why would you get so riled up about Nick Saban? It was a rebuilding year. I mean, you look at what he lost from the previous season, a 2020 team, not just a national championship team, but a team perceived as one of the best teams in SEC history, maybe college football history, certainly on offense. I don't know if anybody in the SEC has ever had a receiving core like Alabama had in the 2020 season and a big-time quarterback in Mac Jones and Najee Harris, one of the best running backs I think that has played in this league. My goodness. So, yeah, in, from that perspective, it was a, you could say it's a rebuilding year. It's just people have a problem with Nick Saban ever saying we're rebuilding because they reload. And they win no matter what. doesn't matter what players they lose. They bring in more future stars. Sometimes I wonder, and we talked about this off, off our podcast, I wonder if Saban just likes messing with people sometimes. <laughs> because anything he says is going to be magnified by the media. Anything. He's the number one coach 
in the country. No one questions that. So if anything he says, it's going to be amplified. And, and I think he said, yeah, I'll just, I'll just throw this out there, give people something to talk about. And it probably wouldn't put a lot of thought into it, but so what? I don't think Georgia fans should be offended at all by the fact that Nick Saban said that. He's just basically what he's saying is this team is the 2021 team wasn't good is our previous our previous model. So that's it. Yeah, I think that's right. The 2020 team was was better than 2021. And I think this year's Alabama team uh, certainly is, is better than last year's. I think, you know, if this time next year, Nick Saban calls this group, this 2022 group, a rebuilding team, well, then I might have a problem with that. But I don't think he's going to say that. Like, Alabama at this point is is rebuilt. Um, you know, I think they're the clear-cut favorite heading into this year. So he won't be able to say that about this team. But I think it was fair to say last year. And what's interesting, John, is after Georgia just sent a, a record 15 guys through the NFL draft, I think you could say that Georgia, in a way, is in rebuilding mode this year. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see, can Georgia rebuild the way Alabama rebuilds because at Alabama, even in a rebuilding year, the expectation is you make the college football playoff. And even if you don't, even if you don't win the national championship, you have a shot at it. And that's the one thing that I think of all the things Saban's done in Alabama that, that really grabs you. I think for me, it's almost even what he does in years in which he doesn't win the national championship. And he's won six titles at Bama. He's also been the runner up at Alabama three times, three times, Alabama has reached the national championship game of the college football playoff and lost. They've had 14 consecutive 10 win seasons. It's that staying power. They never take much of a step back. And I think that's, that's sort of the, the final box to check, if you will, for Kirby smart is to show that, yeah, Hey, we lost 15 guys off the draft and uh, we're not going to take a much of a step back this year. And, and Kirby was asked, you know, on the heels of Saban's comments is, is this a rebuilding team? For Georgia, and of course he didn't say that. He said it's, quote, a hungry team that's eager to prove itself. Now, I think that's sort of coach speak that translates loosely to, yeah, it's a rebuilding team. I'm not going to say that. Um, and Kirby probably still likes his team, and he should like his team. They they returned more on offense than they did on defense. But even on defense, you know, we know there's there's a next wave of, of uh, highly talented recruits ready to step into a bigger role, but it will be a challenge to see if he can kind of keep that machine rolling like Alabama does pretty much every year, even if, even if there's a minor step back. I think Blake that uh, the, the coach's poll is a, uh, is a testament to what uh, Kirby smart has done and, and what he's become. I mean, he's now regarded as one of the top few coaches in the country. And uh, despite all his losses, Georgia's favored to make the playoff again, and I don't think that's a stretch. It still has a very good team, some outstanding players at different positions. I think its secondary could be better than it was last year. So, uh, yeah, Kirby Smart's gotten it done, and he's he's getting being very well paid for it. So you could certainly you could if you want to, if we use the same standard that we use for Alabama, you could say yeah, Georgia's rebuilding. And what what might a Georgia rebuilt team look like? Well, it might be in the college football playoff. John, you mentioned 
correctly mentioned that that Kirby Smart is now regarded among the top few coaches in college football. A guy who this time a year ago maybe wasn't quite looked at in that stratosphere, but still regarded pretty highly was Dan Mullen. And I know we've spent a lot of time on this podcast discussing Mullen and and we've both been upfront about we were we were among those hyping Mullen. We were among the the believers. Well now Mullen is out of college football. There was a, a report last week that he may be nearing a deal with ESPN uh, to spend uh, this upcoming season as a college football analyst. And I really don't want to get much into that because, well, I think just about anybody could be a be an analyst. I mean, who couldn't do what you and I do, John? <laughs> I'm sure our listeners <laughs> yeah, think of that a... think of that all, all the time. Uh, but uh... <laughs> more to the more to the football aspect of things. If, if Mullen wants to spend this year as an ESPN analyst, I'm, I'm sure he'll be fine. Uh, he'll be in the studio there, it sounds like, and I'm sure he'll do a fine job with that. But from a football front, we've seen fired SEC coaches resurface, even at other SEC jobs. Will Muschamp, prime example, got fired at Florida uh, and then was brought back for a, a long tenure, probably longer than it should have been at, at South Carolina. Mullen, though, has already coached at two SEC schools, was successful at Mississippi State, uh, was not fired there, uh, really had his his pick of a couple jobs. Tennessee wanted him, and uh, in my opinion, he would have ended up at Tennessee had had Florida not come along uh, and pried him pried him away. And uh, Chip Kelly ended up at UCLA, and so and Scott Frost ended up at Nebraska. So Florida wound up with with Dan Mullen and. And for three seasons, everything was looking all right for Dan Mullen at Florida. Just taking the Gators to New Year's Six games, and then, you know, even through September last year, there was reason to to feel good about Dan Mullen at Florida. And then all of a sudden, the Gators just came un, unglued in a way that's still a little bit difficult to explain. So, what do you think about Mullen, John? Is is there a chance we see him at another SEC job, or if not in the SEC, you know, maybe? at least another high-profile Power 5 job. And I'm not talking about coordinator or assistant coach. I think we all know Dan Mullen would be a qualified coordinator. But head coach-wise, do you see him resurfacing at this level? Yes, I do. I mean, you, when you look at his track record, it still, it still carries a lot more weight than a lot of coaches out there who are working, who have, who have pretty good coaching jobs. I also think, uh, in, to me... It, he would be perfect as an NFL offensive coordinator. I really like, uh, I really like him on game day and I don't like a lot of coaches on game day. I think a lot of coaches win or lose with preparation and then they just kind of survive game day and the team with the, the most talent wins, but some coaches can tilt to get, tilt the scales in their favor from time to time, just by what they do on game day. I think he was one of those coaches. That, to me, was one of the most baffling developments of the 2021 season, what happened with Florida. Because you go back and you look at that season, it had a solid win over Tennessee early in the year. It almost beat Alabama. Really, really pressured Alabama in that fourth quarter. I didn't see what came next. I never saw it coming. Uh, I I didn't see it just completely folding up. Uh, But it did. And I think uh, that that obviously falls on Dan Mullen. You can cite it for recruiting, a lack of recruiting. He was not perceived as a great recruiter, but he recruited well enough at Mississippi State 
not the easiest place to which to recruit. And he, he did that at Mississippi State. He, he recruited well enough to win a lot of games there, more so than anybody else, I think. But at Florida, and when you're competing and when the expectations for you to compete for a championship, you got to really recruit with the big guys. And and Florida didn't do that under Mel. And so now that's that raises a question of, about him. But on game day, I still like him, and I, I certainly like him. At uh, I I could see him coaching another Power Five program. Yeah, I can too, John. And and one thing I'll I'll add to that is, yes, Florida's recruiting last year wasn't where it should have been, and it became a narrative, a, a an accurate narrative that worked against Mullen along with the team just falling apart on the field. I don't even know if recruiting explains what happened to that team in October, November, but it was another narrative. Uh, that worked against him. However, I wonder about this landscape of college football now. You know, the 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 mantra, the saying has always been, you can't take a day off in, in recruiting. And I think for the longest time, that's been true. But I look at how Lane Kiffin is trying to build Ole Miss so heavily through the transfer portal. And I wonder if there's room for a guy like Mullen who could say, you know what, maybe I'm not going to finish in the top five of the recruiting rankings every year, but I'm going to be a place where guys can put up big numbers for me. I'm going to help guys get to the NFL, maybe veteran guys who are looking to go out with a bang, reboot their career, maybe quarterbacks, you know, who think they could flourish in my system. I'm going to become a landing spot for transfers. And I don't got to worry as much about, you know, trying to re- chase all these high school guys and finish number two or three or four in the, the recruiting rankings every year. I'm going to, I'm going to become portal King 2.0. Um, or how about if Mullen resurfaces, you know, a year or two from now at a school with a well-oiled collective, you know, these NIL collectives in time could become as influential as who your head coach is to your spot in the recruiting rankings. You, you put Mullen at a, at a program that says, Hey, you know, we've got an awesome collective here. Of course you need to be active in recruiting. You can't just be asleep at the wheel, but let us take care of some things here through our collective. Maybe he doesn't have to work so hard in that area. I I mentioned Portal King, and obviously that's a a, a nod to Lane Kiffin. I think about that job, John, and I don't I don't know why. I mean, there's that's that's nothing I've been told. It's just you know from the outside looking in, and you think if Lane Kiffin were to leave Ole Miss, and we've already seen Dan Mullen thrive at Mississippi State, which is the harder job of the two in the state. He took Mississippi State to eight straight bowl games. I mean, that's. That's probably the most impressive line on Dan Mullen's resume, even beyond the three straight New Year's Six Bowls at, at Florida, would just be making eight bowls of any kind consecutively at Mississippi State. So what if Kiffin were to leave Ole Miss? You know, would I know the way that Egg Bowl rivalry is. Maybe Ole Miss wouldn't even consider a guy that's been on the other side of that and and had success in, in Mullen at Mississippi State. But I don't know. He's someone that makes me think, you know, offensive guy like Kiffin is, maybe he could mine the transfer portal the way Kiffin is. If for whatever reason Kiffin were to to leave maybe for greener pastures after this season, could Mullen be a fit at a school like Ole Miss? Yeah, I think anytime you can attract quarterbacks, that's a huge plus in today's game. It's a quarterback-driven world right now, and I think Dan Mullen can do that. When Tennessee hired Josh Heupel as its coach, a proven offensive coach, one of the questions raised about him, could he recruit well enough? 
Well, Tennessee has had a very active collective. And so those questions about, uh, about Josh Heupel as a recruiter, they aren't all gone, but they, they aren't as paramount as they once were. So I think people look at, at Josh Heupel and say he won a seven games in his first season with pretty average talent. He gets better players, and he's there. Tennessee's recruiting pretty well right now, or either in the top 10 or, or right outside it, depending on what day you look at 24-7's uh, composite rankings. So I, I think that kind of role perhaps – Dan Mullen could fill that. I think Dan Mullen has somewhat of a mm, odd personality. <laughs> That's a kind way of putting it, probably. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. You once referred to him as a goofy uncle, John. Did I, I really? That was a phrase you used. Yes. Don't remember that, but maybe I did. I yeah, I guess that would be a, an accurate assessment. He just, and I don't know if that cost him recruits or not. I mean, you can say Lane Kiffin has an unusual personality too, but I think a lot of recruits find his personality attractive. I'm not, I just wonder if, if Dan Mullen, for whatever reason, has a harder time connecting with the recruits, but maybe a collective could change that. I see Dan Mullen somewhere in the big 12. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah. I think maybe he, maybe he does resurface outside the, the SEC, even though he has a long resume in this conference. I don't know that I see Mullen stepping down to like the group of five ranks. I don't think he, I don't think he has to. Uh, I, I think he can get another power five job because if you look at it at the end of the day, like what's the, what's the worst thing you can say about him is that, yeah, it unraveled for one year in the end, but you look at it overall, you know, Mullen's Mullen's got over a hundred victories uh, with 69 of them coming at Mississippi State. So, you know, throughout the majority of two tenures in a in a dog-eat-dog league, he was pretty good. It just, you know, at places like Florida, jobs like that, one bad season combined with a lack of recruiting momentum, that can that can be enough to to trip you up. I think you made a really good point with with Heupel uh, being a bright offensive mind who there was some skepticism over whether he could recruit at the at the elite level that Tennessee needed him to. And now, you know, the narrative has changed and it's like, oh, well, Josh Heupel can recruit after all. But as you said, we just don't know how much of that is influenced by an active collective that seems to be really helping Tennessee uh, in the in the recruiting trail. And, you know, they've they've got a commitment from the five store five star quarterback, Nico Iamaliava who if he signs, which all indications are he's going to, he'll be Tennessee's first five-star quarterback signee in 20 years. Um, is that all because of Heupel? I, I don't know about that. You know, I, I, I go back to that that active uh, uh, NIL collective that, that you were discussing there. So I think that is a prime example of a guy that you get a, you get a good system, you get a good mind, you get a big-name brand school, you get an active collective, and maybe all of a sudden that coach looks like a, a better recruiter than he did you know, prior to NIL collectives. Well, look at the, look at Gus Malzahn. He, a questionable firing, admittedly, at Auburn. He's fired at Auburn. Right away, pops up at UCF. And uh, again, a program that that is headed for the Big 12. So he'll be back in the Power Five. An offensive guy, offensive-minded coach uh, with a quirky personality. 
I don't know how well he could uh, connects with recruits either, but he's winning there, and he won. He he did pretty well at Auburn, just not well enough for a program that expects to to beat Alabama routinely, <laughs> and that doesn't do well for anyone. But uh, so yeah, I could see him at a school just like that. I, I think a school in a very populated area where there are a lot of uh, good recruits nearby. Uh, that could work for Dan Mullen. All right, let's leave it there. We'll be back with you next week. In the meantime, John and I are going to do some rebuilding, and hopefully we'll rebuild as well as Saban does. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered.